Most gracious Father, thank you that even though we are people who fall far short of what you require, what you demand in your law, you sent Christ to fulfill the demands of the law in our place and to impute his righteousness to your people. Thank you for this great gift of grace and salvation in Christ. We pray, Lord, that today you would stir our hearts to a deeper affection for you, to deeper affections for Christ, for a deeper desire to obey him and to follow him and to forsake anything that would stand in the way of following him more fully, more wholly, more completely. And so we pray that as we study your word this morning, you would accomplish your purposes in us. Open the eyes of our hearts to behold the glory of Christ, that he might be magnified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, where we start out with a wedding, which is kind of funny because today's my anniversary, 23 years ago. Uh, Christina and I exchanged vows, and, uh, and here we are, 23 years later. Uh, marriage is so much bigger and grander than you imagine it as a, a newlywed. You know, of all the things that people celebrate, there are few occasions that are more filled with joy than wedding ceremonies. I mean, what really comes close to getting married in terms of things that give us joy uh, on earth? Even unregenerate people, uh, even, even the unsaved, even the heathens find so much joy in weddings. It's just such a beautiful thing. Uh, maybe the birth or, or adoption of a child um, comes close. Uh, that, that was definitely up there. But really, while there are many things um, that can rightfully be seen as sources of, of joy. A wedding is a source of joy that sits without challenge at the top of the list for most people, even by people who don't celebrate it as a God-ordained institution. Uh, for those of us who see marriage as a God-ordained, lifelong, monogamous covenant between one biological male and one biological female, an institution which is designed by God actually to be an illustration of the gospel— according to Ephesians chapter 5, a wedding should be even that much more joyful to people who know what it represents, what it's a picture of. And there was a wedding that took place 2,000 years ago in a small village called Cana. Uh, it wasn't exactly like the weddings that we have today. Many of uh, the cultural customs are very different. Um, a wedding in the, the uh, first century culture didn't typically last just one day. Rather, the feast and the celebration was expected to last an entire week, all at the expense of the bridegroom. Um, I am greatly thankful that that is not the case today, as is every guy who gets married and sees what the bill is. But a wedding in first century Israel was a big deal. It, it was a huge deal. It called for much rejoicing. It, it was a, a beautiful and a, and a joyous occasion, just like it is today, even if our celebrations aren't anywhere near as long as theirs were. And there was something extra special about this particular wedding that was in Cana. God incarnate, the word who in the beginning was with God and who was himself very God, who took on flesh to dwell among mankind, the Lord Jesus Christ was among those in attendance at this wedding ceremony and the wedding festival. So I want to start out our study of this passage today by asking you to consider something. By asking you to consider what gives you the greatest joy in life. What do you turn to when you are seeking contentment, uh, satisfaction, joy? I mean, is it money? Is it family? Is it your job? Is it the respect that people have for you, your, your, you know, your reputation maybe? Uh, is it vacation? Uh, you, you see, we, we turn to so many things hoping to find joy in them. 
But what we so often find is that the joy that we find in these things is ephemeral. It's, it's fleeting. It's here one day and it's gone the next. It's a river of joy today and it's a well of empty despair and sorrow tomorrow. And Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan writer and preacher, saw the way that the world seeks joy, seeks contentment, seeks satisfaction in all the things of the world, only to find that the things of the world can't give a joy that lasts. He said this, he said, quote, The carnal soul imagines that earthly things are excellent. One thinks riches are most excellent. Another has the highest esteem of honor. And to another, carnal pleasure appears most excellent. But the soul cannot find contentment in any of these things. And he goes on to say, They think that if they could but obtain them, they would be happy. But when they obtain them and cannot find happiness, they look for happiness in something else and are still upon the pursuit. End quote. And friends, I... Do not want that to be you. More importantly, since who am I? You know, I I'm, I'm nobody. More importantly, God doesn't want it to be you. He, the God of the universe, the God of all creation, wants you to have a joy that endures and only gets greater, only gets sweeter, only gets deeper over time. And that is ultimately the point of the passage that we will be looking at today. But in order for us to have that kind of joy, the object of our joy must be something other than ourselves. It must be something outside of ourselves. It must be something greater than the things of this world. It must be the right thing that we seek joy in. So having gathered Andrew and John, most likely, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel as disciples, John tells us about this wedding feast that they find themselves attending, which sets the scene for Jesus' first miracle, a miracle that John is going to refer to in verse 11 as a sign, which means that it has a deeper significance than what we see on the surface. It, it's not just a miracle for the sake of being a miracle, for the sake of being a miracle, it's a miracle for the sake of telling us something more than what the miracle looks like on the surface. It's a literal, physical event that points to a greater spiritual reality. So we're going to see that as the story unfolds. Let's look at verses 1 to 5 together. John tells us, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. As you consider the beginning of this story, you can't help but realize that there are a lot of details that John leaves out here. Uh, a lot of things that he doesn't tell us. Let's start with the big one. He doesn't tell us who's getting married. We have no idea who this is. And that might seem to us like a very significant detail when you're telling the story of a wedding, but this is the way that John operates. He doesn't draw attention to any other characters throughout his book. Instead, his attention is steadfastly fixed on Jesus. And he wants our attention to be steadfastly fixed on Jesus. And so I have to imagine that that's why he only refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's why I think he probably leaves out the details here, like this one, who is getting married, uh, to keep our attention completely focused on Jesus, which is fine, right? Because that's where our attention belongs anyway. But another detail that gets left out here is, why is Jesus there? In other words, who in, invited him? Is this somebody that he knows? Or why is he there? Um, because it wasn't because he was a well-known rabbi. He's not there because he's a well-known rabbi. No, his, his, ministry, his public ministry hasn't really started yet. It's going to start on this day. But he wasn't widely known just yet at this point. 
But what we do know is that Jesus' mother, Mary, seems to have been a fairly influential person at this wedding. She seems to be in something of an influential position. Notice how she is the one who instructs uh, them to do, the servants to do, as Jesus asks. So it would seem that maybe the reason that Jesus is here is because he's the son of Mary. Uh, But one of the surprising things, if you think about it, Uh, One of the surprising things about Jesus is that he waited so long to reveal his glory. He waited so long for his ministry to become public. Keep in mind that he's 30 years of age here. This is, this is it. I mean, he, he's waited 30 years. There is very, very little uh, that took place between his birth and this moment that we are told about. I mean, Luke does tell us of a time when Jesus' parents thought that they had, had lost him, but uh, they found him in the temple listening to and questioning the rabbis, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers, Luke tells us. But apart from that incident... The scriptures uh, indicate that Jesus really grew up without blatantly revealing his glory in a public, obvious manner. So the wedding day would be the day that Jesus would start revealing his glory more and more publicly. It takes place, John tells us, on the third day. That is, three days after calling Nathaniel and Philip, which makes this the seventh day. The seventh day. Remember, there are seven days that lead up to Jesus' public ministry. This is the seventh day. It's kind of a parallel with, with Genesis. But something absolutely disastrous actually happens here. They run out of wine. That might not seem like a big deal to you and me in our day and age, uh, but it was a big deal in that era, in that culture. This was, as one commentator notes, quote, something of a slur on the hosts, for they had not fully discharged the duties of hospitality. And he goes on to say they were legally required to provide a feast of a certain standard, end quote. So the fact that they have run out of wine is a big deal. It could mean trouble for some of the people who are holding the feast. But this conversation takes place between Jesus and Mary, which is very interesting. It's a very interesting conversation, and it provides us with some very important uh, things to know about Mary. First of all, it tells us that Mary has faith in Jesus. She she understands his supernatural nature, obviously. She gave birth to him, and his birth was supernatural. But she she believes that Jesus is the one who can fix the problem here. Uh, Not by running to the store to to get some more wine, but by doing something more miraculous. The bridegroom could have supplied more wine if it it had been as simple uh, to solve as simply going down to the corner store to to 7-Eleven and buying some, some cheap wine or something. No, Mary knew that Jesus was God incarnate. She knew what he was capable of, even though for the last 30 years, he hasn't done anything crazy that we're told about, anything supernatural that we're told about, other than uh, being smarter than the rabbis, which is pretty miraculous itself, if you think about it. No, Mary knew that Jesus was God incarnate, and she had known it all along. The second thing that it shows us is that Mary does not welcome and does not invite our faith. No, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Not do whatever I tell you, do whatever he tells you. And we know that one of the major, major problems with the Roman Catholic religion is that they think that Mary herself was sinless and even consider her to be uh, the, the co-redemptrix. M- many hold that position, which makes her, practic- for all intents and purposes, practically equal to Jesus. But Mary's own testimony, she tells us, do what he says. Whatever he tells you to do, do what he says. Obey Jesus, not her. And while we're at it, we may as well deal with the issue of her supposed perpetual virginity. If you look down at verse 12 very briefly, it says, after this he went down to Capernaum, and he and his uh, mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. His mother and his what? His brothers. 
His brother Mary gave birth to Jesus as a virgin, yes, but then she had other children, and it's plain as day here. But the idea that we should pray to Mary or that we should worship Mary is completely foreign to the testimony of Scripture. A far shot from turning her into an idol, her desire and her counsel is that we do whatever He tells you, whatever Jesus tells you. And isn't that how every moment of life should be lived? So first of all, she believed in Jesus. Number two, she didn't invite or warrant our worship. She pointed to Jesus, the authority of Jesus. The third thing that we see here is that Jesus respects Mary. He respects Mary as as his mother. Keep in mind, Jesus is 30 years old here, but this is actually the only time that we see Mary trying to persuade Jesus or influence Jesus in any way to do something. And he responds to her by saying, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not come. Now, I I know how we're inclined to read that, by the way. Um, We want to read this as kind of a harsh rebuke, or we're at least inclined to read this as a harsh rebuke. Um, Guys, if you want to start World War III with your wife, address her as woman. Uh, Yeah, don't do that. Uh, We know that in our culture, in in, in our cultural context, it means something uh, derogatory. It's uh, it's treating your your wife like a slave, right? And and so we we don't do that. But in Jesus' time, it was only a term of respect and endearment. When he was on the cross, for example, he addressed her the same way, saying, Woman, behold your son. So he's not being harsh with her. He's not being rude to her. We, sh- we, we shouldn't see this through the lens of our culture, which is always our tendency. When we're reading the Bible, we want to make sure we're not reading it through the lens of our culture, but through the lens of first century culture. And in that culture, it was really the modern day equivalent of, of calling your mother ma'am. It was the same, same respectability as, as saying yes ma'am or no ma'am or ma'am. It was a term of respect and endearment. It is inconceivable that Jesus would disrespect or disparage his own mother right there in front of his disciples and everyone. If nothing else, uh, that could potentially violate the commandment to honor your mother and father, right? So let's make sure that we understand that this is a respectful response that he gives to Mary. But ultimately, Mary defers to Jesus. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't plead her case further. No, she doesn't argue with him at all. Instead, she leaves the matter in his hands. That's pretty wise, isn't it? We'd be well to, good to make note on that too. You know, he, he might have, as far as she knew, he might have told the, the servants nothing, to do, to do nothing, or he might have given them instructions to do something. Either way, she didn't know, but she believed that Jesus was the only solution to the problem at hand even if his hour, that is the time of his sacrificial death, that's what it means when he says, my hour has not come. Uh, It means it's not the time for him to go to the cross. Uh, Had not come. But here's what we should keep in mind. If we're going to understand the bigger meaning uh, behind the sign that is going to be performed here. In the Bible, wine often represents joy. Wine often represents joy. Psalm 104 uh, verse 15 tells us that wine is a gift from God which has been given to make man's heart glad. And we're not talking about grape juice, by the way. Uh, If the Bible means grape juice when we read about wine, why would there be warnings about drinking it in excess? Why would the person who drinks much wine be looked at as a fool? I mean, think of the story of, of Noah, who we were told in, in Genesis drank too much wine, and he sinned in doing so. He had to sleep it off. Listen, never in the history of humanity has somebody ever needed to sleep off the effects of grape juice. You, you know what I mean? Uh, no, when the Bible talks about wine, it's talking about fermented grape juice. It's talking about alcohol. And wine, not grape juice, is a symbol of joy, oftentimes in the Bible. So when Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine, she may as well have said that there is no joy. 
that they have run out of joy. That isn't what she meant in, in that specific context. But remember, this, this leads to a sign, a, a literal and physical event which points to a greater spiritual reality, kind of like a parable. Uh, you know, you, you read a parable and, and you don't take it uh, at face value. You know, you, you look beyond that and you, you think about it, you dwell on it, you meditate on it, and, and, and you let it... Uh, you, you, you let yourself um, consider what it might mean beyond the parable itself. Isaiah writes, The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. And he goes on to say in verse 11 of chapter 24, There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. So in in this context, you see the connection between wine and joy. And the last thing that Mary wants here, because she's apparently close to to the bride and groom, the last thing she wants is for the joy of the wedding to be turned to gloom. The problem is that it takes months and months for grape juice to ferment into wine. There's no such thing as unfermented wine, by the way. Uh, No, her hope is that Jesus can do something here. She believes that only Jesus can do something. And so she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And here's what we can be sure of. Friends, if you and I will follow that advice, if, if we will heed Mary's advice there, He will never, ever, ever mislead us. Never. If we will do what he says. We must not only obey God, but it's important that we do so joyfully because God isn't pleased with begrudging obedience. Neither are parents. Think about it. If you're a parent and and you want your your kid to, uh, to call their grandma for their birthday, for example, and they say, all right, fine, I'll do it. Does that make you happy? No, you're like, uh-oh, but maybe, maybe we'd better wait. Maybe I'd better convince them to be happy first before they, they call grandma for her birthday. No, we, we want to do the same thing with God. We, we must see that God is not pleased with uh, begrudging obedience. So let us all challenge our hearts to joyfully heed Mary's sound counsel to obey Christ. But John wants us to see something very important here. John wants us to see that apart from Christ, apart from Jesus, there is no lasting joy. The satisfaction that we seek to gain from the things of this world will always disappoint us, will always let us down. That well always runs dry. The ability of the things of this world To give us even a fleeting sense of joy is very, very limited and very short-lived. And everything in human experience attests to this. Consider how many people think that money will give them more joy, but then when they have more than they know what to do with, they're absolutely miserable. It wasn't enough. They need more. There, There must be something else. Or or think about it this way, people turn to carnal sensuality on their computers, but eventually they have to move on to something more and more perverse because the things that once gave them excitement no longer seem so interesting. And that's how so many things in life are. That's how everything ultimately is, apart from Christ, apart from Jesus. The joy that we experience in life from the things of this world is temporary best. It's fleeting. It will always, always end up disappointing you. So Jesus' response to this predicament is a picture of how dissatisfying, how disappointing, how empty life is apart from him. And it's simultaneously a picture of how he, Jesus Christ, is the one and only source of true and everlasting joy, contentment, peace, and blessedness. So let's continue, verses 6 to 10. 
We read, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So it's true that Jesus' hour had not come Uh, Mary's request uh, could have apparently resulted in Jesus putting his glory on full display for everybody to see, and it could have endangered uh, God's plans, uh, his timing for when the hour would come. But Jesus doesn't do that. He, He reveals his glory here, but he does so only to a select few people. John tells us that there were six stone water pots in the vicinity, the purpose of which was for uh, purification rituals. How many of them were there? Six, right, there were six. Does the number six have any significance in Scripture? And this is a question that we ask because we realize that this is a sign, verse 11. So does the number six have any significance at all in Scripture? Yes, it does. Uh, I'd say the answer is yes, but not always. But in this case, I would say there, there certainly seems to be. In this case, John gives us more details about these water pots, how many of them, uh, and, and what they're used for, than, than he gave us about the wedding itself, which is very interesting. Uh, we're actually, uh, we should actually see that these are a central part of the sign here. And so for these reasons, I highly suspect that there is a significance to the number six here. When the number six does have um, significance or meaning in Scripture, it points to man's inherent sinfulness. It points to man's inherent rebellion against God. But notice that they are empty. They're empty. They're, They're just sitting there. So they're a picture of the emptiness of religion and ritual apart from Jesus. I mean, think about it. Everybody believes in something, right? Even atheists believe in something. But man, in his inherent sinfulness and unrighteousness, intentionally suppresses the truth about God. And the truth about God is that he is holy and that he hates sin and he's not concerned with external behavior as much as he is watching and judging and seeing what motivates us. He's looking at the inside, the heart of man, the heart the desires, the motivations that drive a person to do whatever they're doing. He's not impressed with outward moralism. And as a holy God, man in his fallen condition cannot please God with external moralism. He just can't because God's looking at the heart. And yet in his sinful pride, Man imagines, he pretends, he convinces himself that he can please God, that he can do this and do that, do all kinds of works as a way of working his way into God's favor or working his way uh, to please God. That is impossible. That is absolutely impossible. You've got a better chance of shooting an arrow into the sky and piercing every star, moon, and planet in the sky than you do of pleasing God with your own good works in the flesh. And yet this is the very target that every religion in the world, including Roman Catholicism, takes aim at. Religion and ritual apart from Christ only increase God's wrath. Because when a person relies on themselves, when the person relies on their own good works to please God, they are necessarily, simultaneously rejecting the once and for all atonement for sin that is found in Jesus Christ. And they're saying, I don't need that. I've got me. Nothing could offend God more than that. And Judaism is another one, no exception. 
One of the things that John will attempt to do, as we'll see throughout his, his testimony, is confront and demonstrate the worthlessness and the emptiness of their religion. You see, the, the Judaism of Jesus' day uh, practiced and, and even had an obsession with ceremonial purification, ceremonial uh, ritual cleansing. Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4 says this. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. End quote. So they're more concerned with cleaning copper pots than they are in cleansing their hearts. And this is exactly why Jesus would say of them in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. I mean, these were people who were just like those who try to work their way into God's favor today through religion and external ritual, but inwardly, they're dead. Their religion could not fill them with life. Their rituals could not fill them with life because their religion and their rituals were empty, just like these water pots. So it seems reasonable to conclude that these water pots are a picture of the empty, lifeless existence that anyone has outside of Christ. It may very well be that that's why they're empty and that's why there are six of them. Now friends, if you're relying on something other than Christ for joy, for peace, for contentment, for salvation, other than Christ, cast it away cast it away. If you're seeking your ultimate joy or your ultimate fulfillment in something other than Jesus, you have a responsibility to flee from it, to repent of whatever that is. At least put it in its place, in its rightful place in your life, if it isn't necessarily sinful. But if it's going to cause you to stumble, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Whatever that thing may be, it is an idol. You know, how many sermons have I listened to that were really closer to a TED Talk than they were to an exposition of Scripture? And you've probably heard them too, or or you've at least heard of them. Five ways to, to be a better spouse. Eight ways to win friends and influence people. Four habits to make you a better co-worker. Listen, if you, if you listen to sermons that have five points a week and you listen to 52 sermons a year, do you realize you've got 260 points to remember and to live by? I think about how overwhelming that is because when you get that many points, how many are you going to remember? Zero. Zero. And it's not that these things are without value. In the right context, of course there's value to these types of things. But they cannot replace the preaching of Christ and him crucified. So I'm talking about pastors who are presenting these pop psychotherapy talks as sermons. But they're just like these water pots. They're empty. They have no Christ in them. I mean, if you, if you pick up a book at the local Christian bookstore on church growth, you'll, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. There's this emphasis on, on using very positive language, euphemizing terms like sin and wrath, and we'll just call it a mistake, and we won't say wrath, we'll say it's not God's best for you. And, and then you, you, you emphasize words like love and acceptance, and you know what? This is the crazy thing. Non-Christians aren't offended by that type of thing. And honestly, even if I was a demon, I don't think I'd be offended by it either. In the classic book, The Screwtape Letters, one, one demon is writing to his nephew on how to keep people away from Christianity. And at one point, he says this. He says, a moderated religion is as good for us, for the demons, as no religion at all and more amusing, end quote. 
And that is exactly what characterizes so much of modern evangelifish Christianity. Spineless, heartless, Christless. It's a moderated religion that would entertain Satan himself. But friends, the wine of this Christless religion is a well of satisfaction that will always run dry. It will always disappoint. It is empty. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus can fill you with joy. Jesus can offer you a contentment that transcends every other circumstance in your life so that your joy, so that your peace, so that your contentedness isn't contingent, isn't hinged on all these other things. It's grounded in something that doesn't move. The solid rock, Jesus. Jesus fills those who come to him empty with life, with joyful, joyful life. And so Jesus instructs the servants to fill the water pots with water, and they did as he instructed. And he then tells them to draw some water, which is turned into wine, and to take it to the head waiter. And again, they do as he instructed. And the head waiter can't believe how good this wine is. The quality is above and beyond what he was expecting by far. And so he commends the bridegroom for saving the best for last, noting, wait, who did he commend? The bridegroom. It's the bridegroom he commends, not Christ. He commends the bridegroom for saving the best wine for last, noting that what most people do, what everybody does, is they save uh, the worst wine for last and serve the best wine first because people will be too drunk to notice that the bad wine comes later. Uh, so again, this isn't grape juice. Uh, what, a, what a silly argument the grape juice argument is. It's really silly. But there are a few things for us to note here. First of all, given the size that John tells us these water pots are, we should see that we're probably talking about 150 gallons of, of wine. Uh, 120 to 180, 150 is right in the middle of that. So, so clearly, Jesus has provided more than enough. Uh, we should note that Jesus is not promoting or endorsing drunkenness here. No, Scripture is clear that there is nothing wrong with drinking alcohol in moderation, but it is sinful to drink it excessively. So Jesus isn't endorsing excessive wine consumption here. Rather, he's demonstrating that the life and the joy that is found in him alone is not just barely enough, but that it's more than enough. That it is more than sufficient, more than we could possibly need, more than we could ever possibly use. But we should note more than just the, the quantity. We should also note the quality. It's, it's not a poor quality. It's not even a mediocre quality. It is top quality joy and life that we find in him. See, eventually a Christless existence, a Christless religiosity is going to grow stale. It's going to grow bitter. It's, it's like cheap wine. I mean, do most people who, who want wine for the sake of an enjoying wine, do they, do they buy cheap wine at, you know, at the corner drugstore at 7-Eleven? No, of course they don't. Why not? Because you might be able to convince yourself to drink some, but eventually it's just bad. It's just bad, and you don't, you don't want any more. One of the parables of Christ that we didn't cover in our two-year study of the parables was the parable of the new wineskin. Uh, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 37 to 39. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. What was Jesus teaching there? He's actually teaching about the same thing that he's teaching in this miracle that we're looking at today. He was teaching that you can't follow, you can't adhere to an empty, Christless religion and be filled with the joy and the life that is only found in Christ. 
The old wineskin represents Judaism. The new wineskin represents life in Christ. Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples understood that you cannot have joy-filled, life-giving religion with a dead and empty religiosity. One of the amazing things about this miracle of turning water to wine is that Jesus simply willed it. He doesn't go up to it and cast a spell over it or hocus pocus or anything like that. He doesn't even touch it. He just wills that this water would change to wine. Doesn't even touch the water pots. Ironically, if he would have touched the water pots, all they would have done is defile his own purity. But we're talking about Jesus here. Fully man. Fully God. Fully man, fully God. Wine has, has a living nature, and, and that's what fermentation is. Water on its own is not going to produce life. And so too it is in our salvation. It's God's will that all who will repent and believe will be filled with life. Will be filled with life. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says about God's work of regeneration. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27 says this. I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, says this of that passage. He says, quote, All that have an interest in the new covenant and a title to the new Jerusalem have a new heart and a new spirit and these are necessary in order, in order to their walking in newness of life. This is that divine nature which believers are, by the promises made, partakers of. End quote. See, if you have come to Christ in faith and repentance, God has not left you as you were. He has changed you more drastically than you could observe in a mirror. No, God didn't leave you the same. He, he removed your old heart of stone which could not respond to God and did not desire to please God. And he replaced it with a heart of flesh. And that's what he does when a person is born again. The new heart loves God. The new heart responds to God. It desires to obey God. God must, must act or we cannot believe because we're born with a heart of stone. What a wondrously joyful thing our salvation truly is. The, the more and more you understand it, the more you see that our salvation is from the Lord. That it is all of grace and that salvation is from God alone. John continues, verse 11. He tells us this. He says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this was the beginning of his signs. By the way, if you're wondering why Matthew didn't record it, it doesn't seem that Matthew's following yet. So Matthew uh, wrote what he saw, wrote about what he saw, but he apparently wasn't there to see this. But John was there. This is the beginning of his signs. But only the disciples and Mary and some of the servants understood that it wasn't the bridegroom of the wedding who did this. It was Jesus, the better bridegroom, the greater bridegroom. And when I say that, I mean to tell you that there is a greater wedding, a better wedding that is yet to come. When the bride of Christ, which is the church, from throughout all the ages, who repent, all who repent and come to saving faith in Christ Jesus alone, when the church will enter into an eternal, sacred, blessed union with the Lord Jesus forever. This day is announced in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, where we see John say, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And then Revelation chapter 21, verses 2 and 3, tells us of this glorious wedding which is coming. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is what awaits every single person who will forsake every effort of their own to please God in the flesh and will trust entirely in the work of Jesus in their place instead for their salvation. Is that you? Are you trusting in your own good works or are you trusting in Jesus? Do you have an empty religiosity that runs dry? Or do you have Jesus? Have you come to the point where you realize how lifeless and how meaningless all of your own efforts to earn salvation are? Do you see the vanity? Do you see the futility of all the things in this world that promise you joy and peace and blessedness and meaning and contentment? Then your response, if you do see that, your response must be the same as the disciples. To believe. To believe, John tells us, and his disciples believed in him. Now, we have to understand, they, they already believed in him. I mean, we, we saw the dialogue that took place prior to this. They, they believed. But like us, their faith was renewed. Their faith was reinforced. Their faith was strengthened in that moment. What little faith they had became greater. And that's how the Christian life is. You start out, and you feel like you've got such a big faith, but it's because you started with nothing. But as you go along, you see, wow, there's so much more to this. There's so much room to grow in our faith. And his disciples believed in him. Now some of you might be like these water pots, empty, lacking the joy of knowing Christ as your Savior from sin and as the Lord of your life. And if that's you, the answer is to leave the Christless life that you've lived behind, to forsake it, to repent, and to believe in Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Or maybe you've come to him and you have believed in him, but you don't feel the joy of salvation that you once had. Sin is one thing that'll do that, by the way. Sin will take away, it'll steal your joy in salvation. But while those water pots couldn't cleanse a person from sin, Jesus can. Jesus promises this, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if that's you, come to him. Again, believe in him. Again, ask him for joy. Talk to him. Pray to him, knowing and believing that he can provide more than enough for you. In Christ Jesus alone, we find a joy that gets richer and sweeter with time, which is so contrary to everything else that just grows stale and bitter with time. No, in Jesus we find a joy that gets richer and sweeter with time. Just as the Lord provided more than enough wine, so too he can provide you with more than enough grace, more than enough peace, more than enough contentedness, more than enough joy. In Revelation 19.9, God specifically instructs John to write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The guest list. The guest list is the book of life in which are written all the names of all who will repent and believe in Jesus who himself is the solution for empty religiosity. In Christ and in him alone we find fullness of grace, fullness of truth, fullness of life, fullness of joy. Our salvation, friends, is a joyous, joyous salvation. And friends, this, this is what the Christian faith is about. Jesus alone transforms the emptiness of dead religious ritual into a joyful, life-filled, eternal existence in his everlasting kingdom.
our most gracious Father. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it nourishes us. Thank you for the way that it instructs us. Thank you for the way that it penetrates the depths of our souls, showing us what's there. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us the grace to repent of anything that we turn to for joy, that we have a higher priority than Christ in our hearts for. Teach us, Lord, to flee from anything that would hold us back from following Christ. Teach us, Lord, to set our hearts and our minds on Christ, to let his word dwell richly in us, that we may turn to him continually for joy, for contentment, for blessedness, for satisfaction. And teach us, Lord, to only turn to him for these things. May he be glorified as we repent and may he be glorified as we go forth today as people who live for him, who have left behind a Christless existence and have a Christ-centered reality in the here and now because of what he did for us. Thank you that he cleanses us from our sin, taking our sin upon himself and clothing us in his own perfect righteousness in order that we could stand before you as your children justified for the glory of Christ. May he be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.